And uh, again, as we do that, I just want to welcome you. And we are back in our study of Mark today. And our passage is in Mark chapter 10. And you know, it's good as we take a break normally through the holidays and we have a special focus. We did our Advent series and we did a uh, sort of an end of the year and the beginning of the year message. But uh, we're back in Mark and um, we've gotten through nine chapters and I'll do a a brief sort of catch-up and review, but we are in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. In a few minutes, it'll be up on the screen as always, but you can turn to that in your own Bible. Uh, Mark 10, 1 to 16. But we have been studying the Gospel of Mark, and the theme and title of our series is The Way of Jesus. And we've noticed that Mark is a uh, quick writer, and he gets to the point, and he uses the word immediately a lot, if you remember that, and he's kind of going from one event and one story to the next. As he is building the scenario, he's building the scenes, and he's building the excitement and anticipation, and he is building his story and his case for Jesus being the Son of God and for his deity. And all along the way, we see Jesus and his disciples, Mark being one of them, just following the Master as His disciples on the way to the cross. And we're going to see as we get into the later chapters that Mark spends a lot of time focusing on the very final week of Jesus' life. But to get there, we need to see, to hear what Jesus taught. Mark focuses a lot more on what Jesus did than what He said. And each of the four Gospels has a different sort of focus on a different um, flavor, because they're different writers, of course, that God uses. But we see these different events in Jesus' life, but it's more about the things that He did along the way. And so we are here in Mark chapter 10 as we've gotten through um, a good portion of the Gospel story of Jesus. We've seen Jesus heal. He has performed many miracles And as we will see today, he has confronted the religious leaders. And we know as we read the Gospels and Acts as a follow-up to the Gospel of Luke, we recognize that Jesus spent a lot of time interacting with the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees because they were trying to trap him. They recognized early on that they actually wanted to kill him. And so at this point in our story, Jesus already knows that. But we're going to see once again in our reading today in Mark 10 that the religious leaders are trying to trap Jesus. Now we know it's a uh, foolish endeavor. They have not learned that yet. But they are trying to trap Jesus into doing or saying something that would cause dissension, that would cause Him to break the law of Moses, to defile what they believe God has instructed them to do. And so this is no different. And so they had been teaching in and around the Sea of Galilee. And they have gone to different places and even crossed uh, crossed the sea. And uh, we'll see where we pick up here that that they leave their region uh, where they were and they head to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And the, um, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, ask him a very pointed question. And the question is about 
divorce. Not a topic that we would want to spend a lot of time on. And if you remember, we studied the book of Malachi before we came into Mark. Remember that? And then we looked at the, 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 what's called the intertestamental time, the 400 years between the Old and New Testament. But when we looked at Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, there was a very powerful passage in Malachi 2 all about divorce. And so we spent a whole message on divorce and so today we will touch on that but you'll see i believe that jesus is looking even beyond that he is answering the pharisees question but it goes beyond just what god thinks of divorce and marriage because it's symbolic of something greater and it signifies something even deeper that goes right to the heart of the matter and Isn't that just like Jesus to always cut through all of the fluff and all of the red tape and he just goes right to the heart of the matter? You know, um, we were blessed to recently go to a wedding a couple months ago and you know how the DJs always try to have these fun things to have the couple do and it's kind of fun for everybody to to stand and watch. And so they did this thing, I thought it was really sweet because sometimes the things that they do at these weddings can maybe be a little inappropriate. But um, what they did was this. They had everybody come out onto the dance floor that was married. All the married couples go onto the dance floor. And then the DJ said that as he's playing the song and everybody's dancing around, I'm not going to start dancing. That's not why I stood up. But um, <clears throat> he had all the couples come out and, and, uh, and were dancing around the, the, the newly married couple. And he said now, um, as he's playing the song, he would say, anybody that's been married... Less than five years, you can go sit down. You see, and then he said, anybody less than, uh, you know, ten years, sit down, sit down. So the idea was to have one couple standing at the very end with the, the newly married couple that has been married the longest, right? So it was kind of fun, fun way to do that. And so the final couple was actually related, I think an aunt and uncle or grandparents or something, and they had been married almost 60 years. And it was wonderful. Of course, everybody clapped for them. And then the DJ said, um, at the, he, he kind of you know, faded the song, and he said, what we'd like you to do now is give some advice to the new couple. What is the secret to the lasting marriage almost 60 years? And, and you usually hear a lot of funny things, and it's usually something like, you know, the, the, the husband will say, make sure to the other husband you always have the last word. And the last word is, yes, dear. Right? That's what it, that's usually what you hear. But you know, this couple was so sweet and um and the husband said to his wife and to the new couple and he said, The secret I believe to our lasting marriage is to always think of your spouse before yourself. And isn't that such a biblical principle? That he would be humble enough, that we would be humble enough in our relationships, and even especially in marriage, to think of the other first to put the other spouse first in everything in every way whether it's the small things or the big things that you would put the other first in that sentiment that actually biblical truth speaks right to the main point that i think jesus is trying to get at today in our passage the beautiful truth is that if in a christian marriage in a godly uh divinely appointed and designed marriage if the two are to become one, as God says, then isn't it in your best interest 
to think of the other first? If in God's eyes you enter into what we say holy matrimony and you are both seeking after God, then wouldn't it make sense that you would always put the other one first? Because now the two of you are one, God says. It's a mystery how it is, but in God's eyes, yes, you're two individual people, but in God's eyes, in the marriage union and relationship, the two have become one to be inseparable. And so the idea is that, yes, wouldn't that be a great principle for a long-lasting relationship, really of any kind, that you would put the other first, but especially in marriage, if the two have become one, it's even in your best interest to think of your spouse first. Because then if it's working healthy and right, then your spouse is thinking of you first, Your needs are met, their needs are met, but you're not having to meet your own needs. See how that works? And so that's really what Jesus is getting to. And he's basically saying that the holy, divine union of marriage is a covenant. It's way more than just a contract. It is a covenant between the man and the woman, the husband and wife, and God Himself. So on this subject of marriage and In our passage today, divorce, God certainly has spoken. We're going to look at a few verses that speak to that. But I think one of the main problems is that we don't always like what God has to say on a particular subject. It might rub us the wrong way, or we might not agree with Him. But I think Jesus' bigger picture lesson here is that God is the Creator. He is the one that has designed marriage. So therefore, we are to follow His standards and His design. See, most people don't even understand the teachings on divorce, as we will get into, because that is what Jesus is addressing. Because we don't understand marriage. See, how can you understand the Bible's teaching on divorce if we don't first understand God's design and God's creation and God's heart for marriage? So I'm going to read it, and it will be up on the screen. This is Mark 10. 1-16, to then we're just going to briefly go through each section and see what it is he's trying to teach us this morning on this subject in particular, but then a, a bigger, even more important lesson for us to take away and apply to our lives this morning. So this is Mark 10, 1 to 16. As Jesus left there, and he went to the region of Judea and even beyond the Jordan, And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as that happened, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, Well, what did Moses command you? And Jesus said, Well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and then marries another 
commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And then they were bringing children to Him so that He might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, He was indignant and He said to the disciples, Now let the children come to Me. Don't hinder them. For to such belongs the Kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the Kingdom of God is like a like a child shall not enter it. And He took them in His arms and He blessed them, laying His hands on them. And this little section at the end about letting the children come to Him, it fits perfectly, of course, in His teaching on marriage and divorce. We'll see how that all works together and, and why Mark included that, why it happened right after. Jesus used that as a teachable moment. So we'll walk through this together. And we're going to sort of uh, park in different verses for a little bit longer than others and unpack what Jesus is teaching us. So, verse 10, it says, He left there, He went to a region of Judea, and beyond the Jordan, the crowds again gathered. This is sort of a good summary of Mark. So if you're just joining us today, or have sort of forgotten what we've covered in the first nine chapters, this, uh, verse 10, is kind of, in a way, um, it is, uh, I mean, verse 1, it's actually a way to summarize the first nine chapters because Jesus and His disciples were traveling around. The crowds were following Him. And then He had mercy on them and He taught them. It says, as it was His custom. If you've been following us and, and been here for, the, for our study of Mark 9, doesn't that kind of sound like what's basically been happening every step of the way? Jesus moves on. There's a big crowd and they kind of move on with Him and follow Him. And He looks and says, oh, another crowd. And then He teaches them. So that's what's happening here. And the crowds gathered and Jesus taught them. And then verse 2 says the Pharisees came up and in order to test Him, they asked Him a question. Now again, that's been happening all along as well. That the Pharisees, we don't even think about it, but you know, it's not just disciples and it's not just the interested parties that have been creating this crowd and following Him. The religious leaders have been with that crowd all along. And that's important to remember. The scribes, the Pharisees, they keep showing up. They're kind of like hiding behind the scenes, you know? And they're kind of just mingling around. And uh, every once in a while, they kind of pop up and they try to test them. So that's what happens here. So nothing new, but this is what they say. So this is how this time, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, try to trap Jesus. They ask Him a question. Now, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Now, first of all, why would they even ask that question? Well, first of all, it's part of the law. They know it. Jesus is about to call them on it, and he's so good at doing that. But they're trying to get him to say something that would defile the law, that would go against the law of Moses, to make them look better and give them a reason in the eyes of all the other people to, um, to arrest Jesus and even put him to death. And so they basically say, all right, this time let's ask him about this hot topic. Let's ask him about this. Jesus, is it okay? Is it okay according to the law of Moses for a man to divorce his wife? And look at how Jesus answers in verse 3. He simply says, well, what does Moses say? What did Moses command you? Now, think about it. They knew the law, right? Jesus knew the law. And so he puts it back on them. 
puts it back on them and he says, well, let me answer your question with a question. It's really a good tactic. And of course he says, so what does Moses command you? He's saying, you know what the law says, tell me. What does Moses teach? And so, verse 4 says, well, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, because of their hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment. That's the key right there. That's like the heart of the passage. Because see, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are all about the letter of the law, and they're trying to trip Jesus up. And of course, Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. And they say, is it okay? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus says, okay, well, what does Moses say? And they said, yeah. Moses, according to the law God gave him, said it was okay And it was under the the law for a man to divorce his wife and give her a certificate of divorce. And actually, the reason for that, it was kind of by the mercy of God. We'll get into this. But it was because that would actually cover the woman, that certificate. It would show that she didn't commit adultery and she was okay. She, She didn't need to be ostracized by the community. And so they're saying, yeah, Moses and God said it was okay to divorce. And all it takes is a piece of paper. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound like our society today and our world today that it's so easy, you just, yep, you sign a piece of paper and that nullifies things. And so Jesus, of course, is not going to leave it just hang there, but he gets right to the heart and he says, they re- and they say, no, it's okay by Moses. And Jesus says, you know why? Because your heart is wicked. Because your heart is hardened. And he says, this is why God allowed it in the law Because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment. See, Jesus is about to go on and teach a little bit more and unpack this teaching on divorce and what what God's view of marriage and relationship and divorce is. And He says it's because of the sin. The sin problem in your very nature that God even allows divorce for a specific reason. Now, What do the Pharisees and religious leaders think about that? But see, Jesus cut to the quick, as we say, and he gets right to it. See, he's trying to say this, and Jesus is saying a lot in that response. It's the hardness of heart, because the Pharisees have lost sight of God's original design for the law. That's our bigger picture today. God is the creator, he creates things that are beautiful. Beyond description. Even the creation of the law was for the benefit of the people of Israel and the nations around them because Israel is supposed to be a light to the, uh, to the heathen nations. And so the law was good for them. It was to point them to their sinful nature and need for God to help them and be merciful and gracious. But the law was also good to keep order. To keep order among them. And so... The law was good, but the religious leaders distorted it. And the religious leaders tainted it. And sin, from the very beginning, the Garden of Eden, distorted what God had made was good. Ezekiel 36.26 I will give you a new heart, God says, and I'll put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's Ezekiel 36, 26. 
Do you see the idea is backing up what Jesus said? It's because of your, the hardness of your heart. God reflects that in Ezekiel 36. 26, and He says, I have to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh because your heart was hardened. So clearly, Jesus is saying God's design is tainted by sin. His design being one man, one woman in holy marriage with God at the center. And then He goes on and unpacks that. Verses 6 and 7 and 8 9, He says, this is Jesus now talking and saying, from the beginning, this is still in Mark chapter 10, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Let's stay there for a moment. Can you see why Jesus started to go into more detail about this? Because He says to them, it's because of the hardness of your heart. It's the sin problem that God even allows for divorce for a reason. And then Jesus goes on to remind them about that law that they love so much, what it actually says. He says, let's go way back, even before the law. Let's go back to Genesis. Let's go back to creation Let's start with God, how about, and not just stay on the letter of the law. And Jesus says, from the beginning of creation, do you see that right there? See what he's trying to do? He says, way before the law, Pharisees, from the very beginning of creation. Two things are important there. From the beginning of creation, so he's saying God is the creator of this. And it was all the way from the beginning. He's setting the stage. You can't go any further back than the beginning. And you can't look any further than God Himself, the Creator. He says God made. Again, He's hitting home. God made them male and female. See, He's now quoting the Bible they should know. He's quoting the Scriptures way back from Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Some versions say cling to his wife. You know, that word of the Hebrew is really the word for glue. For being like stuck like glue. You ever stick two things together with like, you know, gorilla glue? Right? It doesn't come apart. That's the idea. When we say cling, when it says that they shall hold fast, that he shall hold fast to his wife, the idea Jesus is building, and he's building his case, he says, it's like glue. It started from the beginning. It was from God the Creator. And here was his design, that the two would become one. The male and the female, so we define marriage. One man, one woman. Coming together, holy matrimony. And Jesus is saying, going all the way back to God's design from Genesis, the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. See that? Now, if you're married, you've been married, you understand there's still two people, right? But in God's eyes, the two have become one. Inseparable. Stuck together like glue. And he says, they are no longer two, but one. And that's how we should see it. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You've heard those words before, right? We don't use those a lot in weddings anymore, but 
You see a lot in the movies, right? That the, the officiant will say that right at the beginning. You know, if anyone uh, uh, here sees any reason, right? And then you, that, that they shouldn't be joined together, speak now. But then at the end, he'll usually say these words. Because it's so important that after they are joined together as husband and wife, he says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Can we just let that sink in for a moment? Those are familiar words, but think about why it's in Scripture and why Jesus is quoting it now. What God, again, from the beginning, the Creator, what God, the one who designed marriage, what He joined together. Not what a pastor joins together. Not what a husband and wife decide to join together. It's what God has joined together. Don't let man try to separate. See that? Here's what he's trying to say, I think. He's really getting to the point. He's telling the religious leaders, why are you even asking about divorce? Why are you going right there? Why are you even worried about an exit strategy when the focus should be on the two becoming one? Let not men even try to separate that. He's saying, don't even let that be your focus. God has allowed it for a reason because of the hardness of your heart. Because of the sin problem see from the beginning it's god's creation so he clearly defined the terms it's his standard his design the two shall become one god has joined them together why should we even try to separate it jesus saying it's a holy union because in god's eyes the two have become one flesh god performs that two-in-one union. See that? Jesus is quoting back from Genesis, and then He really hits home in verses 8 and 9. The two shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man try to separate. So when a couple on their wedding day, right during the ceremony, when they speak their vows... It's not a man or the woman, the husband or wife, or a pastor, or a parent or anybody who is the main focus of that moment. It is God, the Creator, the designer of marriage Himself. Marriage is to be an illustration of the Gospel to the world around us. Therefore, God certainly has a great investment and a clear stake in the sanctity of marriage, doesn't he? If it is to be an illustration and a picture of the gospel of his sacrificial love to the world around us, then it matters to him. Ecclesiastes 4.3 This is often read at weddings as well. If one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. But better than both is he who has not yet been. Right? That we have? Maybe it was the wrong one. I think we go on to that. I might have quoted it wrong. But we know what it says in Ecclesiastes. We read that, right? He says this, If one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Remember that? You hear that a lot? I think it's important. Why? Because it reminds us that in marriage... It is the husband and wife and God. The cord of three. And so Jesus is saying 
what God has joined together to make that perfect union, man can't separate that. Man shouldn't even try. And he's asking, he's telling the religious leaders, why are you even worried and focused on that? And we continue in uh, verses 10 through 12. What happened, this often happened. After he said that publicly, the disciples pulled him aside and they're in the house. It's a private teaching now. It says, in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So Jesus gets more specific. Just to the disciples, very personal. And he's teaching them the deeper meaning. So it's obviously important. And again, he gets right to the heart of the matter. He's saying to his disciples, God created marriage, so it is to be engaged in by his standards and not ours. See, we forget in this world that everything begins with God, the creator, and not us. It should come as no surprise that the world, the world system, that our adversary is running, that the world would try to and desire to change what God has instituted. Romans 8-7 reminds us, it says, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. See, before salvation, we are enemies of God. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, so of course, The world in every way is going to try to redefine what God has designed. We should expect that. Now, in Matthew's account of this same event that we're looking at in Mark, Jesus adds something very important. It's the same account, the same teaching, but in uh, in Matthew's account it says this. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. And then he goes on, it's the same thing we see in Mark. But from the beginning it was not so. And Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So it seems to be that Jesus is saying there is a reason in God's eyes for divorce. Now, I have to say that there are many believers who don't believe that there's an exception. Many brothers and sisters in the Lord who might see it differently. But it seems to me that Jesus here is saying, God designed marriage. He does not want divorce. That is not His heart. But if there is sexual immorality, it seems like Jesus is teaching that God will allow it. Allow for divorce and remarriage. But it also seems in there, which is inferred and not said explicitly, that remarriage is really only allowed for the offended party and not the spouse who offends. Now we went through this a lot in our study of Malachi. So that's not the bigger picture for today, but it's important we recognize that. That seems to be the teaching of Jesus. That there is at least one, perhaps there's something in in 1 Corinthians that talks about an unbeliever marrying a believer. But for our context today, Jesus is saying, especially in the Matthew account, That if a husband or wife, it works both ways, divorces the spouse, they commit adultery except in the instance of sexual immorality. And last thing about that, sexual immorality is defined in many ways and described in many things. It's not just having an affair. It can look like 
many different things. It's teaching probably for another day. And so Jesus is talking about adultery. But what's the bigger picture there? He is saying, look, why are we trying to even talk about breaking the covenant of marriage? Because that goes to a bigger picture. He's saying through the religious leaders, the people of Israel have broken their love covenant with their Creator. And marriage is a picture of that covenant. And a covenant is not to be broken. And Jesus is teaching that. He's saying that bond has been broken over and over again, people of Israel. And Jesus is saying, this is symbolic, this question, this, this subject of marriage, it speaks to a bigger issue. But of course, we know with God, all things can be restored. Because God, the designer, His heart is always for restoration of things that are broken. So in broken marriage, God's heart is for restoration. Even in the case of sexual immorality, there is that opportunity because with God, all things are possible. And so we have to understand that too. God's heart is that the two are one. But because of sin, if there is brokenness, God is all about restoration. Remember that as well. And then, um, almost done. He says in verses 13 to 16, and it seems like it might not go together, but look at how this just flows right through it. Then all of a sudden it changes, it changes sort of momentum in, in the scene here. And it says, and then they were bringing children to him, meaning I think the parents were bringing their children to Jesus that he might touch them, heal them, love them, bless them. And the disciples rebuked the parents, keep your children away. What is that? Children are to be seen and not heard. Is that, is that the old saying, right? But what happens, verse 14, when Jesus saw what was happening, He didn't just correct them and say, no, no, no. He was indignant. That's key. Let's not skip over that. Jesus was indignant. Immediately, He said to His disciples, He rebuked them. And He said, no, no, no. Don't keep the children away from Me. Let them come. Don't hinder them. He says they represent a bigger picture too, a bigger issue. He says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. He says, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Then he took them in his arms. He embraced them. He blessed them. He laid his hands on them. See, it's almost as if saying, look, you know God's design for marriage? Of course, is to bring God glory, to be a picture of his sacrificial love to the world between a husband and wife, But isn't there also a very practical reason in God's design for for marriage between a male and a female, a husband and wife, and that is procreation. Because God says then back in Genesis, after that first marriage, He says, go populate the earth. Fill the earth. But why? It comes back to His glory. Fill the earth because we are created in His image. And my image is to fill the earth that I created. Does that make sense? That's the picture Jesus is trying to get to. And so, of course, the little children, don't keep them away. The children are a beautiful picture of a marriage in God's eyes. To procreate, to to fill the earth with little children, boys and girls that look like their parents, but ultimately designed in the image of God. So people will see and know Him. See, God's beautiful design for marriage. So He ties that all in. 
And I want to end uh, end with this. You know, I mentioned that we spent um, a whole uh, message, a whole sermon back in Malachi uh, on um, the covenant of marriage and on divorce. And this is what we really looked at. And I just want to read it and end by um, highlighting what he says here. This is Malachi 2, 13 to 16. And it's talking again about Israel breaking their love relationship and covenant that is pictured here in marriage. It says this, this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, those are God's tears, with weeping and groaning because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. You see the people of Israel are being chastised through Malachi. It's saying God is weeping at the altar. He can't even accept your worship anymore. But you say, why? Why is this? Why is God weeping at the altar? Why does He not accept our offering of worship? And here comes the answer. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. See, God was present at the marriage ceremony, He's saying. He was there. He is that third strand in a court of three. And he says, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. There has been a break of the covenant. And it's in the form of infidelity in marriage. 15, he did not make them one. It says, did he not make them one? It's the two flesh becoming one. Were they a portion of the Spirit in their unions? He was saying, this is in Malachi. Didn't God join together the husband and wife? It wasn't just the pastor or the parents agreeing. It was God who joined them together. And it says, even with a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? What was His purpose in creating marriage? Godly offspring. Not just offspring godly offspring that would represent his image so guard yourselves in your spirit let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says the lord the god of israel covers his garment with violence some of your versions might say i hate divorce that's where it comes from if his garment is covered in violence it pictures hate god hates divorce So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Marriage, you see, is designed as a covenant. Man, woman, God, and it's for life. That's God's design. He is the creator. It's a picture of the gospel. And it is designed to fill the earth with the image of God. But church, here's what we've done. And it goes way beyond broken marriages, infidelity. We have distorted and we have marred God's beautiful design for His creation. We do it with the environment, the way that we treat the world He gave us. We do it with our bodies, the way that we treat our bodies, these earthen vessels that are now considered the temple of God. We do it in relationships. We were called to have dominion over this earth, and what have we done with it? But see, 
it goes even beyond Jesus' teaching does, beyond marriage. And he, of course, is addressing that because that's how the Pharisees tried to test him. But he's saying God is the great creator. He's the designer of all things. And so we must remember that it starts at the beginning with God. He is the creator. But just like what happened with Adam and Eve when they had this perfect union, Adam and Eve and God, the cord of three strands, when everything was good, when they sinned and took it upon themselves to live outside of God's standard and outside of God's design, they were cast from the garden. And you know what? The world didn't look so beautiful anymore. There were thorns in the ground that they then noticed and they had to work around. They were then covered in their perfect bodies that God gave them were no longer perfect. They were now subject to disease and even death. Life wasn't so fun and beautiful anymore. Even the things around them didn't seem so nice. See, it was the marring and distortion of God's beautiful design. We see it from the very beginning. But again, God is in the business of restoration. At the end of all things, God will restore. He will make new. We will sit at the marriage feast of the Lamb when Jesus returns as the bridegroom for us as bride. Once again, even through all our infidelity, our immorality, we will once again be joined. Now, this side of heaven through Christ, we have that restoration spiritually. We thank God for salvation in Him and Him alone. We look forward to that day. We will not struggle with that infidelity and immorality in our covenant relationship with Him. So church, we are to live this life according to God's standards because this life is His design. We are to live this life on His terms, by His rules, His standards, based on His design for His glory and not ours. Let us enjoy what God has made to be beautiful. The world around us, the people in your life, your husband, your wife. Let's remember that he's the one that instituted marriage. And as our creator, we follow his design. At the end of his creating process, back in Genesis, he said, it was good, didn't he? He looked at it all and he said, it was good. He looks at you. He says, you are good. You are my child. You are my creation. Seek after me. Come alongside of me and I will lead you. The path to beauty. The path to righteousness. Holiness. And that's a daily thing, church. Be reminded. Be encouraged. The God who created. Created you. Loves you. pray father we um, we're sorry we ask for forgiveness however we have offended you even today we know that we are not yet perfect and that we have been forgiven of our sin and for that we are forever grateful but yet, Lord, we, uh, we stray. 
we stray from the beautiful path you have set before us. We stray from the beautiful and perfect word you have given us to direct our path. We stray from your design, even in our marriage relationships, as we become selfish and as we don't think of the other first. But God, may we even remember the sweet words of encouragement from the couple who's been married 60 years, that the key is that we would always put our spouse before ourselves. And God, may we never forget that it is you who creates that cord of three strands. And that because of that, it is inseparable. God, help us not to try or to even attempt to separate what you have joined together. Lord, may we fix our eyes on you. And may we worship you, be grateful every step of the way. And as we live this life you've created, to enjoy the beauty of it in all of its beauty, in all of its glory. You designed it to point right back to you. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus.